It's always good to arrive and count our blessings on Memorial Day weekend. It reminds us of the ultimate sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, but it also is very good to stop and realize how good God has been to us in this country and the many efforts and sacrifices that have been laid down so that we can enjoy the freedoms and the blessings that we now do enjoy. But it does remind us of the one who's behind all of this, and that is our Lord. And it reminds us of the ultimate memorial that doesn't take place once a year, but every first day of the week, and that, of course, being the Lord's Supper. We'll be able to gather around the Lord's table here in just a little bit. But I always like to talk, talk about and stop and reflect upon some thoughts that will help us in our daily life, but help us also to observe the Lord's Supper around this time of year. The resurrection of our Lord can help us to do that very thing. Think about how the resurrection of Jesus is connected to the Lord's Supper. Is it? You know it is. Over there in Matthew 26, when Jesus said concerning the fruit of the vine, He said, This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. In just a few sentences later, Jesus will say, And I will take this new with you in the kingdom. Jesus could foresee that he was about to go to the cross and suffer and shed his blood for remission of sins, but he also could see further that he would be raised from the dead, that he would just shortly be on the right hand of God. And the kingdom would be set up and his people would be observing this communion. And he would be doing it with them, new, in his father's kingdom. Yes, great connection of the resurrection to the Lord's Supper. Over in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, we often read this long paragraph about the Lord's Supper, as we should. It's the Apostle Paul speaking there. Notice how he begins verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. He says... For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. How is, it, how is it that Paul became a spokesman for the Lord's Supper? Because the resurrected Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And then continued to appear to him, continued to guide him in his work and in his writings. Yes, there is a very direct connection between the resurrection and the Lord's Supper. And of course, we remember Jesus' death, but he died on Friday, not on Sunday. Why do we gather on Sunday, the first day, to remember the communion, to partake of the communion, remember the Lord? Well, it's because he was resurrected on that day. And of course, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians Uh, 15 and verses 13 through 17 that 
everything is quite useless without the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then it's all pretty much in vain. All the preaching, even our faith, even our very lives are in vain. And so, yes, let's take a look at a few personal thoughts. Let's do some personal reflection on the resurrection as a way of remembering our Lord, especially uh, what he did during those uh, very sacred days. First of all, let's remember his power. Let's remember his power. The resurrection helps us, of course, with this. Our common experience with death is that it is um, it's irreversible. We all have had different experiences of death and we'll continue to have those experiences. I wish it wasn't like that, but we will. One that comes back to me when I was younger, 8th, ninth grade, I remember we went home at from school at Christmas break and one of our little league coaches, football coaches in those days was a man by the name of Bill Sims and he had a son, Billy Sims. Billy was our age and they were very active in sports, also active in hunting and over the holidays, little Billy accidentally shot himself with his dad's gun. Little Billy was not in his desk in January. And for little old middle schoolers, that made a great impact upon us. He wasn't coming back. It was irreversible. And in a sense, it still is, but not really. Because the resurrection of Jesus makes those things that were irreversible now very much reversible. Jesus actually died physically. If you look over to John 19, 33, the soldiers are going to the execution victims, breaking their legs if they were not dead already. They came to Jesus, and it says there in John 19, 33, he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs, which was a fulfillment of Scripture itself. But one of the soldiers took his spear and pierced the side of Jesus Physically, Jesus, we know he was dead. Now, if you look over to Mark 15, 42 to 45, you see that he was officially pronounced dead because Pilate was not going to give up the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea for burial until he got official word. And so he sent his centurion out to check on the situation. And the centurion came back and said, yes, he is dead. He was officially proclaimed dead. And we know from Jesus' own mouth, notice it, or, or from John's own recordings, and from Jesus' own mouth. In John 19, 30 and 31, John records that Jesus says, it is finished. And after that, he gave up the ghost. So physically, officially, and biblically, Jesus is dead. But he came back to life on that early first day of the week. And that holds out the promise for us, of course, that that which was irreversible 
unchangeable is now very much changeable. Nothing, no, nothing, not even death, is final because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and because of the fact that he came back to life on that first day of the week. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. He says, now it's a fact that Jesus was raised from the, from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For through man came death, and through man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in its own order. Christ the first fruits. Christ first died and came back. And now at his coming shall we all be made alive. There, yes, there will be a resurrection of the body. There will be a new body on that judgment day. And we have this hope because of the power of God. Now be sure to mark in your Bible Acts 26 and verse 8. Paul is speaking to two leaders there, Festus and Agrippa. And he says, why is it such an incredible thing for all of you to think that God raises the dead? That's a tremendous question. Look at the power behind that question. Paul says, why is it thought such, to be such an incredible thing that the God of the universe will raise, can raise the dead? And that's a great question. It's a great question. God who created this universe, God who created life, it's a piece of cake for him to bring the dead back to life. The creator can do it. The sustainer of life can do it. And he will do it on judgment day. He will bring a resurrection of the body. And so first, I want us to think and reflect on the power of Jesus. Think about his power. And think about not only does that give us hope into eternity, but it gives us hope as we face any challenge in this life. Secondly, notice his words. His words. When one of our loved ones pass on, we think about their mannerisms, we think about their habits, and we remember their words. Don't you? My dad passed away early in 2014, and I remember his words. Parents have a way of making you remember uh, their words because they just say them all the time. My dad was our little league coach, and a lot of times we come home at night disappointed in what happened to the game that night, but he always said this, and we knew before he said it he was going to say it. He said this, you win some, you lose some, and some get rained out. He said that once, he said it 3,000 times. But it's an incredible, the, more, the older I get, this, it's an incredible philosophy for life. You give your best in everything you do and you trust the Lord in everything you do, but this is how you're going to get some. As you try to reach souls, you're going to win some. You're going to lose some. And then you're not going to get a shot at some of them. But you keep on going. 
keep on trying. Well, Jesus has some words that we remember. It's particularly about the resurrection. He predicted, of course, that he would rise from the dead. Matthew 16, 21. He tells his disciples, Matthew 16, 21, that there was a time coming when he would be delivered up to the leaders in Jerusalem, the, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, and he would suffer at their hands. And then he would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. And it's interesting, as the women come to the tomb, if you notice in your Bible in Luke chapter 24, as the women come to the tomb that, that Will read for us uh, this morning, notice in Luke 24, the angel is going to speak to them, beginning in verse 5, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, Luke 24, 6. He's not here, but he has risen. Remember, notice what the angels are saying to the women. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And it says there, verse 8, they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. They remember those words. We remember the words of Jesus. He said he would be raised from the dead. And then later... He said, I am risen from the dead. He said that several times. Even 60 years later to, to John, the Apostle John, Revelation 1, 17, you remember, you remember this? Jesus appears to John. 60 years later, he appears to John. The resurrected Lord appears to the Apostle John 60, 60 years later after his own uh, literal resurrection. And he says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, Jesus said to John. I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Oh, we remember the words of Jesus. <clears throat> remember these words too. In John 20, along about 19, following 19, 20, 21, John 20, Jesus walking around resurrected, appears to his disciples all of a sudden. That's the way he would do in these resurrection appearances. He was there for a little while, then he was gone. He'd come back, he was there for a little while, then he was gone. So he appears to them. And he says to them, these are some words to remember. He says, peace be unto you. Don't just run over that. Peace be unto you. You can have peace. Because I am here, he's saying, you can have peace, true peace in your life with God Almighty. Peace be unto you. And then he said this. He said, as the Father has sent me here, so I am sending you out. Those are words to remember. What about these words in John 20 and verse 29 where he looked to Thomas and he said to Thomas, so, Thomas, so you have believed because you have seen? And then Jesus said, Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. Now, everybody who becomes a Christian in our day are in that category. And Jesus pronounces a blessing upon those who, though they weren't there, yet have the honesty and the integrity and the, and the will and desire to seek 
the Lord out from the scriptures and find the truth and believe in him. Blessed are those, blessed, more blessed are those actually than those who are actually there in person. We remember his words. All right, let's go down another path of reflection here. I want to start it like this. You know, when one of our loved ones passes away, we not only remember their words, but we'll go through their things. And those very things that they would use from day to day, time to time, will we'll bring memories rushing back into our hearts. Oftentimes, uh, a parent, a grandparent, will have their own rooms. They have an office you can go through. And, and it's, um, it's a very respectful experience to go through where they used to be. My dad had a, a shop. My dad was multifaceted. Okay? I'll never be that way. But he could do anything. Okay? He could build a house. He could... He, he ran the post office. He, he, he was um, a faithful uh, church member. He, he was a baseball coach. He could do anything. He had a shop of his own. Still there. Still there. And all his tools were still there. And you walk through that shop. You, you, you understand. You, you grow in respect. And here are the things that he used to accomplish what he did. Okay. We remember in Acts chapter 9... When Peter went and he raised a Dorcas from the dead. But before Peter got there, they were showing all the things that Dorcas had made with her hands. Did Jesus have a room of reflection? Well, he tells us in Luke chapter 9, 57, 58, that the foxes have their holes and and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man, he has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't really have a room of his own, but he did have one room, and that's the tomb, the empty tomb. If you look back to Luke 24, verse 12, you see on, on that first day, Peter runs to that tomb, and he looks in, he stoops down, and he looks in, and he sees the linen clothes they're all by themselves. And then John records it even further in John 23 through 8 where John says he and Peter both ran to the tomb and they both stopped and stooped and looked in. And Peter went on into the tomb and they both went on into the tomb. They saw the linen clothes there lying by themselves and they also saw the face covering of Jesus neatly folded up laid in a place away from the other linen clothes. Now, one thing about this, if the body of Jesus had been there when Peter and John went in, if the body of Jesus had been there, we would not be here today. Amen? If Jesus had been there, we would not be right here today. But he wasn't there. And that makes all the difference. Now try to put yourself in Peter and John's sandals for just a minute. Can you imagine walking into that tomb where there was supposed to be, there was somebody there a few hours earlier, but now nothing is there except for the grave clothes that he had on. 
Can you imagine all the thoughts that rest of their mind? <laughs> Did they start remembering some things that Jesus had said? Did some of that meaning start coming back to them? Can you just imagine? Can you possibly imagine what it would be like? Well, the angel, you know, when these ladies come to the tomb on the first day of the week, the angel is there, or angels are there, and they say some things to the women, but they also extend an invitation to the women. They say, Come and see the place where the Lord lay. That's an invitation to us as well. Through our mind's eye, through our imagination, we need to go back and we need to imagine what it would have been like, what it would be like to walk into that empty tomb and see the grave clothes there and see that seal broken and wonder how did this happen? Could it possibly be? Is this something too good to be true or is this something so good it's just got to be true? It's the latter. It's so good it's just got to be true. Can you imagine? I was so utterly excited last year because we had VBS last year. We didn't just have VBS. But our ladies constructed Jesus' tomb for our children to walk into in the fellowship hall. I trust that, I know it was, very meaningful to exp- allow those children to let their imaginations explore what it must have been like to walk into that empty tomb. As we reflect, let's remember the room of Jesus. Let's remember his power. Let's remember his words. Let's remember the really the only room Jesus left for us to investigate. He didn't, he didn't have another thing to his name, but he did leave us this empty tomb. In the fourth place, let's remember his scars. Let's remember his scars. We remember what Thomas said when the other disciples said, look, we were with the Lord last week and we saw him. Thomas said, John 20, 24, 25, Thomas said, unless I see the print, unless I see the hole in his side, unless I see the print in his hands, I'm just not going to believe. So Jesus appears with Thomas and the other disciples that next Lord's Day, and he says, Thomas, come here. Reach your hand hither. In other words, feel of me. Look at me. Touch me. And Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. But the question for us is, why did Jesus keep those scars? This is the Lord God Almighty. He could have had any resurrected body that he'd want. He can come back with any body he wanted, any body, not anybody, any body, any resurrected body he wants, why did he keep those scars? So much different than us, right? We want the glamorous body. We want the pearly whites. We want the wrinkle-free. We want to be all toned and everything. We want people to admire us. Jesus could have had any resurrected body whatsoever. Why did he keep those scars? He kept them. 
And we know why he kept them. Can you imagine even this account of Jesus without the scars? You just can't do it, can you? We know that he kept them because he wanted to keep identifying with us the flesh. Jesus came to be flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't want to lose that identity. He became one of us. He was tempted like as we are, Hebrews 4 verse 15. He didn't want to lose that connection. He will and has retained that connection from now on. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 says, It is the man, Christ Jesus, who now makes intercession for us. He kept those scars. And of course, he kept those scars because he wanted us, not for him, but he wanted us to always be reminded of what he did. What caused those scars? Okay. When we're taking the Lord's Supper... And when we're getting up every morning, we need to remember the scars. He kept those scars because he wanted us to never forget what he did, what he went through for, for us, and how bad sin is. This is how, look at my scars here. This is how bad sin is. Stay away from it. And he kept those scars, I think, because he wanted us to understand that there's hope beyond pain. The aches and the tears and the blows and the scars that we have, of course, not even comparable to what Jesus went through, but still he is our example. The scars that we receive, we need to know there's hope on the other side of those scars. The scars may never go away, but the pain goes away somewhat. More and more. And it's interesting for us to ask, where are my scars? Paul says in Galatians 6.17, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. Where are my scars? What have I done? I've done nothing. So we remember his scars. And then, in the fifth place, we remember his people because they underwent a great change. We remember his people. The greatest enemy the church has ever known became one of the greatest proclaimers, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle. There's only one thing that can make that change, and that's Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appearing to him. Paul being totally convinced that Jesus is real. Think about Paul. He himself says in Acts 26 and verse 9, he says, I set out to do all things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Or another way of saying is, I set out to be as hostile as I could be against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what changed him? Well, the reality of Jesus being the Lord, and much of that come through 
the fact of his resurrection. Paul knew it. In Philippians 3, Paul says that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a ringleader of the Jewish religion. If anybody had access to evidence, if anybody had opportunity and resources to prove Jesus false, it would have been Saul of Tarsus. But he could not do it, and he would not do it once he himself saw Jesus alive. Galatians 1.23, Paul says that everybody went about saying, He who made havoc of the faith, he that persecuted the faith, is now preaching that same faith. We remember his people. The great change. Now, think about his disciples for a second. And what I'm going to do is turn to John 20 again. And you might want to do the same. John 20, verse 19, is powerful. Yep, that's it. John 20, 19. The disciples, after Jesus' crucifixion, put themselves, which is never good to do, put themselves under a lockdown. You notice that there in John 20, 19, they were behind locked doors. They're not coming out. They are terrified that what had just happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. They're behind locked doors. Now, Jesus is just going to appear to them in that room where they're locked down. But they're behind locked doors. Now, these same men when you open up the book of Acts, are out in the street publicly preaching Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. What changed them? No doubt, Jesus appearing to them and showing him his hands, showing them his feet, showing them his side, and eating food with them showed them that he was very much dead and now very much alive again. These men cringing in fear now are fearless as they go about preaching the word. C.S. Lewis said that if the claims of Jesus are false, then the claims of, are of no importance. Of no importance. But he said also, if the claims of Jesus are true, they are of infinite importance. And then he added these words. He said they'll never be of any moderate importance. How true. How true. Jesus said himself, Matthew 12, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. And yet, that's exactly what we see happening often among Christians is they're trying to be moderate Christians. There's no such thing. Okay. They're trying to do and follow and serve Christ in a moderate way. They're trying, they, want, they want the world and they want Christianity. And they want both and it's impossible. That just simply will not work. And then we remember the beauty of the gospel in two ways. As Jesus died for our sins and was buried, literally, and was raised, literally, 
Even so, as Paul explains it in Romans 6, 3 and 4, or actually 2 through 4, we die to sin. Verse 2, Romans 6. We are buried with Christ in baptism, and then we are raised to walk in newness of life. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's just that simple. We bury our sins in the blood of the Lord and in the baptismal waters. And we're raised to walk in newness of life. As Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 1, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. We remember that we've been raised with Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is also seen in the Lord's Supper. Because as we partake of the bread, we remember that Jesus gave himself for our sins. His life, his body, his life for ours. As we partake of the communion, we remember that it had to be a death where much blood was shed because in God's ultimate wisdom, it was the shedding of the blood that would bring forgiveness of sins, not just to anybody's blood or any animal's blood, but of the Son of God's blood. And as we partake of the communion, and as we are instructed in the Bible to do so, we partake of it on the first day of the week. And that brings together the beauty, the death, the blood, and the resurrection of Jesus. Indeed, we are blessed, aren't we? Thomas, you have believed because you have seen, but blessed are those who believe but have not seen. If in any way you need to come home to the Lord this morning, let us be moved, let us be inspired by our Lord to do just that. Otherwise, let us go deeper into our faith and our appreciation for all the Lord has done and all that He is for us. Let's stand and sing at this time, brother.